Welcome back, I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I cut through the BS and lay out what the gaslighting clowns pulled out of their hats this week and what is coming next. Americans are spending a bigger part of their income on food than they did 30 years ago. In other words, at least going by food costs, we have made zero progress in 30 years. In fact, just last week, the Wall Street Journal actually published an article titled, quote, To save money, maybe you should skip breakfast. Not a joke. I've mentioned in recent videos how government spending and mandates have gutted our productive economy, despite the media's happy talk and useful advice about skipping breakfast. We are to the point that while each generation used to get much richer than their parents, in fact, almost double their parents' income, today millennials pine for the glory days of their youth living in an actual house their parents owned instead of eating ramen at 40 with their roommates. A few days ago, the same Wall Street Journal put some stark numbers on it, reporting that the last time Americans spent this much of their paycheck on food, the internet did not exist, Terminator 2 was in the theaters, and Madonna was still rocking the pop charts. Americans now spend 11.4% of their income on food, with both groceries and restaurants getting worse. That's up from just over 9% before the pandemic and before Joe Biden. The journal thinks this will keep getting worse because of soaring prices for inputs and labor costs, especially since 22 states just hiked their minimum wage, which hits food production hard. Meanwhile, Americans' income, the other half of that number, have actually been falling since Joe Biden took office. According to my colleague EJ Antoni, the typical American household has lost $7,400 in lost annual income after inflation. If you had recently bought a house, that loss is almost double. So incomes are falling, food's more expensive, we are moving backwards. The journal notes correctly that food prices are never coming back down. At least it's never happened under the modern Federal Reserve. Any inflation they take, they keep. Even Joe Biden's supposed inflation victory just meant prices went up slower. They never went down. Ironically, that same Joe Biden was recently threatening food companies for reducing portions, which they do so consumers can afford the product, because his talking point is that printing money to fund $7 trillion of deficits, which largely are buying wars and the COVID lockdowns, had nothing to do with prices. It was all corporate greed, as in companies were not greedy under Trump, but now they suddenly are. As Tom Woods puts it, that's like somebody asking why a plane crashed and Boeing says it was gravity. So what's next? Harder times won't be news to people who are actually living in Joe Biden's economy, for those who can see past the manipulated and cherry-picked government statistics. From shrinking houses and falling homeownership, those millennials with ramen, to second jobs and now soaring food burdens, we're seeing real-world indicators that Americans are no longer making progress, that the golden goose is dying. It's official. Japan has just entered recession. In fact, it's bad enough to lose Japan its spot as the world's third largest economy. The land of the rising sun now joins the UK and soon Germany and the rest of Europe in recession. China, of course, is already in deep recession. The U.S. naturally is safe because Joe Biden spends between two and three trillion of your money pumping GDP numbers with migrant welfare and artillery shells for Ukraine. 
Japan's cabinet office announced the numbers last week, reporting that GDP shrank a worse than expected 0.4% in the last three months of 2023. That was a huge miss to the expected 1.4% growth, meaning mainstream economists in Japan are as bad as they are here. That miss came after GDP shrank 3.3% in the previous quarter. Now, for almost a century, two negative quarters of GDP is the definition of a recession. Of course, here in America, we famously broke that rule in 2022, since midterm elections were coming and Bidenomics needed some good press, and so our regime media obligingly gaslit the recession into oblivion. As Charles Payne tweeted, quote, back-to-back negative GDP quarters only count for the UK and Japan, or as CNN obediently puts it, two quarters is typically a recession. Typical as in, if there's no important election coming up. So what's driving the pain in Japan? Domestic demand and consumer spending were weak, with only exports doing well thanks to a ridiculously cheap yen. Private consumption, which is half the Japanese economy, plunged almost a percent on the quarter as prices jumped especially for food and fuel, which is also a consequence of that ridiculously cheap yen. Meanwhile, Japanese wages failed to keep up. In short, as in America, Japanese are falling behind in real incomes, and they're not buying anymore. For them, it's the end. For us, it is the bozos in Washington. So what's next? Beyond the recession, the problem with weak GDP numbers in Japan is that it ties the hands of Japan's central bank, which had hoped to fix that collapsing yen by hiking interest rates. So currently, Japanese rates are roughly 0%, which means investors can make a lot of money pulling their cash out of Japan and buying U.S. debt that pays 5%. That means trillions of yen for sale, which drives the yen down. So it's currently bumping around 150 per dollar, which is a number last seen in the 1980s. While a weak yen is good for Japanese exporters and bad for U.S. manufacturers, the main problem is what it does to consumers in Japan. So Japanese people import two-thirds of the food they eat and 94% of their energy. So that's heating, air conditioning, gasoline. So yen at 150 means those things can jump by 30%. So far, importers have held off raising prices, praying for a miracle from the Bank of Japan. That miracle just got a lot dimmer. Now, zooming out is turning into a global recession. I mentioned recently that Germany and Europe are deindustrializing. They're also apparently defarming. China is stumbling from crisis to crisis. The UK is already in recession. Australia and Canada are barely growing. Meanwhile, inflation has been resuming its grim march. It's accelerating again in Europe, while US inflation has gone from an annualized 1% in October to almost 4% today. Now, last time we saw a coordinated global stagflation was 1970s, after Nixon broke the gold standard and half-killed the golden goose. What the COVID spending orgy did to governments and central banks finish it off. I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term, and the Unchained Bitcoin IRA is a great way to do that. You get the tax advantages, and if it's a Roth IRA, you're not going to pay capital gains so long as you hodl. Most Bitcoin IRAs make you give up control, which can expose you to exchange hacks or even relend it out like banks do. With Unchained, you control the keys to your Bitcoin, which means you always know it's there. They also provide one-on-one concierge service to walk you through it and answer any questions. Why pay more taxes than you need to? Set it up today at Unchained.com. Use promo code PETER to get $100 off a Bitcoin IRA. It was an entertaining week on the internet thanks to Google's rollout of Google Gemini, their much-hyped chat GPT killer. It started innocently enough as somebody asked Gemini for pictures of the founding fathers. 
who, it turns out, were surprisingly diverse and, alas, did not include any white people. It went downhill from there as people discovered that apparently Gemini is not allowed to show white people and will give you a lecture about tolerance if you try to make it. Well, to be fair, it actually turns out Gemini is perfectly happy to show you white people. In fact, it will only show you white people if you ask it for stock photos of criminals. The fun rolled on as users probed the depths of Gemini's abject wokeness, asked if libertarianism or Stalinism did more harm. Gemini said it's complicated. Asked if Elon Musk or a certain German dictator hurt more people again, Gemini said, that's complicated. Asked whether the U.S. is a better place to live than 1930s Germany, it simply responded, no. Like much of corporate America, Google's been falling apart ever since it embraced woke ideology. Starting around 2010, as left-wing activists rolled out their well-funded pressure campaign on Silicon Valley, which had previously been a libertarian utopia and accelerating once Donald Trump won and those activists got a huge boost in funding. The problem is at this point it's basically crippled Google. The core product search is the only reason it is worth $2 trillion, and they are throwing it away, apparently, to indulge in anti-white racism and criticize Elon Musk. Of course, this is true across corporate America, from Budweiser to Hollywood, throwing it all away for nothing. In theory, shareholders should be demanding new management, but in reality, shareholder votes are overwhelmingly controlled by four companies that custody shares. That's BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, and Invesco. These are all woke, and they use their custodianship to insulate management from the consequences of their bad choices. That means management is free to destroy the companies, to destroy shareholders, but they keep getting invites to the cool dinner party, so it works out for them. So what's next? I'm actually deeply relieved that woke AI was so bad, because my biggest fear with AI was that it would get this halo of godlike authority like we give to universities. I was afraid millions would be seduced into totalitarian communism exactly like the university halo has done. In fact, woke AI has become such a joke that it seems to have inoculated a large proportion of the global population against that halo. It's made their default to laugh when an AI says something political, not to treat it as gospel. Or as Scott Adams put it, Gemini helped take the public perception of AI from the Santa Claus's real stage to the let-me-double-check-that stage in a single bound. Fortunately, wokeness is doing essentially the same thing to the mother of woke halos, the university. There's still a deep well of authority to drain, earned over centuries before universities became woke finishing schools. So we're not quite to the point where professors a punchline the way that Gemini has become. Still, from infinite genders to FDA covers up to running political cover for Joe Biden, the university is doing its best to ditch the halo of authority that Google apparently just threw away. I cannot wait. Fresh data on the leading indicator says the consumer is collapsing and, quote, near zero growth is coming. The new data comes from the conference board, which is one of the most prestigious economic prediction outfits going back to 1916 when lying government statistics were but a twinkle in the eye of the bespectacled totalitarian Woodrow Wilson. The conference board's most important work is precisely this index of leading indicators, which has been estimating recessions for 110 years. And in those 110 years, its tracker record has been pretty decent, certainly better than our taxpayer-funded versions. Since the mid-80s, for example, it's flagged all four recessions with just two false positives, those were 1986 and 2016. Of course, both were near recessions. In 1986, we got Black Monday, the worst stock market crash since 1929. 
And in 2016, we had the stagnant Obama economy, which was precisely what handed the White House to Donald Trump. So what are the numbers saying now? The latest figures for February showed consumer confidence plunging 3.8% on the month, which is a big drop, along with the biggest downward revision in series history. In other words, however we thought consumers were feeling, it is a lot worse. Other drops included shorter work weeks, which is a pretty reliable indicator that layoffs are coming, falling manufacturing orders, falling building permits, falling consumer expectations, and a deterioration in the interest rate spread, all of which are reliable recession indicators. To be fair, there were a couple bright spots. Stock prices, which it's worth mentioning, always go up early in inflation. So in Germany's Weimar hyperinflation, they were actually celebrating because stocks went to a trillion before eggs went to a trillion. And also in credit, since there's still trillions sloshing around Wall Street for big companies to borrow, even though regular suckers are paying 8% on a car loan and 22% on the credit card. Beyond the dismal print, the bigger problem is that leading indicators is currently running negative for the 22nd month in a row which is the third longest losing streak in a century. The last time it was this bad for this long was the 2008 financial crisis. Before then, it was the lost decade of the 1970s stagflationary crisis. What's driving it naturally is sky-high interest rates that are failing to end sky-high inflation, along with out-of-control government spending, which shows up as GDP but is not going into American consumers' pockets. After all, spending a trillion per year on migrants is money wasted, doesn't actually go to American consumers. Meanwhile, what we give to Ukraine is blown up, while money spent on, say, climate mandates or EPA regulators are predators on the real economy. We're essentially spending money to make ourselves poorer. So what's next? While 22 down months is dire, it's worth noting the conference board is only predicting, quote, near zero growth for 24 not outright recession, as defined by GDP. And that's because of the reasons above, government spending. Of course, that becomes a statistical mirage if consumers are getting poorer even as GDP booms. Toss in inflation that's rising again, and it saps what little growth we have, and even that near zero becomes very fragile. And so, after a surprising 2023, indicators are back to debating whether we are stagnant or shrinking. The likely tiebreaker will be inflation. If it keeps up, we could be looking at a long 1970s-style stagflation, this time with a 2008-style worldwide financial crisis that, if it snowballs, could knock us back to somewhere we haven't seen since the 1930s. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. Known for their competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They have set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to moneymetals.com. Weaponized environmental lawsuits are destroying America's productive economy from manufacturing to energy to mining, handing our prosperity and our independence to China and its growing band of minion dictators. Two years ago, the Biden administration celebrated taking 4 million acres of federal land that's bigger than the state of Connecticut off limits for oil and gas exploration. Environmental groups were ecstatic, calling it a new path toward independence from fossil fuels. 
They were ecstatic because the land had enormous potential to create jobs and wealth and domestic energy, freeing us from conducting permanent wars in the Middle East and perhaps even keeping the lights on. The move was part of a much bigger push to effectively ban domestic production, not just in energy and mining, but in manufacturing. What's most concerning is the tactic. The 4 million acres were condemned not because of a public policy decision that voters could weigh in on, but to settle a lawsuit by Wild Earth, an environmental lawfare outfit. So they'll sue to compel some policy, and since the Biden administration is sympathetic, the legal battle is basically a play fight. Like, please don't force me. Presto, they condemn 4 million acres without the people's representatives in Congress even having a say. In fact, with nobody to blame. They forced us, you see. The tactic is known as sue and settle. It's absolutely ravaged our mining industry to the point we are forced to rely on China and hostile third world dictatorships to keep the lights on. As Tom Pyle of the American Energy Alliance puts it, quote, the swamp has been refilled via lawsuit with unelected bureaucrats circumventing the will of the people. According to the National Association of Mining, America's reliant on imports for more than half of its use of 51 minerals. That's up from 47 last year. We're 100% reliant on 15 minerals, of which 12 are, quote, critical. To illustrate, today China alone refines 42% of the world's copper, 65% of the lithium, 70% of the world's cobalt. China has already weaponized critical rare earths, embargoing any country that disobeys it from Lithuania to Japan. It can do this because our environmentalists have handed it a monopoly. Meanwhile, the U.S. is sitting on some $6.2 trillion of minerals in the ground. And by the way, we have much stricter environmental standards. Of course, that doesn't matter since it's not about clean production or indeed about the environment. It's about them banning anything they can, and environmentalists cannot ban stuff in China. To illustrate what it looks like on the ground, a few weeks ago, American Rare Earths, a rare earths company, found 64% more rare earths than it expected at its Wyoming mines. But it might not be able to even bring it up with environmentalists blocking the way. In Utah, a potash mine, which is a clean fertilizer, was blocked by lawsuits. We've had similar stories from oil in the Permian to lithium, which is critical in manufacturing, along the Nevada-Oregon border. So what's next? Sue and settle is an even bigger problem than energy and mining. Biden's new ambient air particle rules are predicted to put at least 1 million manufacturing jobs at risk. And according to the National Association of Manufacturers, quote, we will barely be able to build new manufacturing facilities. Our economy is being crushed by Washington, we're gutting our communities, and we're handing our future to dictators who hate us. It won't stop until we get a president and a Congress who can pull a Javier Malay, drain that swamp till it's dry. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode fresh in your inbox and go to petersanange.com to read the weekly articles with charts and all the gory details. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.